Welcome to the Pragmatic Lead Podcast. Your hosts are Alex Pachuk and John Massey. We have conversations with folks throughout the tech industry to get real-world perspective on how people make things happen for their careers and businesses. Check out pragmatically.com for more content just like this. Alexander, thanks for joining us. Why don't you uh, kick us off and tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, okay. I wonder how far back I should uh, go. First of all, thanks for having me. I'm I'm excited for the episode. So my name is Alex. I'm an undercover Frenchie living in London. uh, I'm building a company called StepSize with uh, my brother and three of my my closest friends. that you know we've grown over the years sort of started in at the end of 2015 and um the product we're building is all about helping modern engineering teams manage technical debt so that's i think what we're going to be talking about mostly today yes absolutely so we wanted to take just a minute first to uh, dig a little bit into step size it says so step size is to measure prioritize tech debt what is step size and what problems are you working on? Like, can you give us a little bit more description or how would you describe how? Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. That goal? Yeah. So, um, you know, I spend most of my time speaking to the best engineering teams that I can find who will have me, who will tell me about how they deal with technical debt. That's how we met. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of the teams that I speak to often tell me that they find it very easy to draw a straight line from shipping a new feature to some positive impact on some company KPI. You know, we ship this thing, we make more money or engagement goes up or whatever it is, but they have a much harder time doing the same thing with any piece of debt in their code base that they want to fix. You know, how do you draw a straight line between maintenance work and good things happening for the company? And that's what you need to be able to do to prioritize the right technical debt, which is to say the debt that if cleared, really moves the business forward. So, you know, we built this SaaS product that integrates directly into the engineer's workflow to make it super easy for them to track the debt they come across day to day, and most importantly, to quantify the impact it's had on the business. So that might be in terms of engineering hours lost or or product quality issues like bugs or outages, all this kind of stuff. And this is the data they need to prioritize the right tech debt and eventually understand the positive impact it's had on the company when they fix it, right? Mm. So we also plug in directly to um, plug plug di- directly into tools like Jira to ensure that maintenance is always part of the planning conversation and other sprint ceremonies because tech debt isn't just engineering's problem, right? There are mm. many different stakeholders involved, and we help them paint that picture. Yeah, and uh, you took me through the software. Uh, congratulations, it looks fantastic. And I think Thanks. the I think you're right about the. It does feel like you're trying to get in line with where the engineers are working in the moment to mm-hmm. capture the story as close to where it is as fast as possible, so that they're not having to write a whole lot of additional documentation, jump out of their maybe yeah. they're in a flow and they want to capture something immediately. So my question I have is, did step size always look the way it looks today? Or are there kind <laughs> of some interest, like, are there some lessons that you've learned while developing the product about how teams are managing their tech debt or the conversations they're having around it that you think would be interesting? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, we started, like I said, um, early 2016, right? So we've been through many iterations of different products. It wasn't always about technical debt, but what we were building was always about helping engineering teams ship better software faster, regardless of what we were building. And, you know, the thing that you mentioned about being integrated in the devs workflow was one of the lessons that we learned very early on. You know, a lot of the teams that we speak to have a homemade solution where they might have a big backlog of all the technical debt issues that they came across in their code base in some tool like Jira. And the issue with that is, generally speaking, Jira is a great place to put things that need to get done, but not a great place to put things that need to be monitored. And, and by definition, uh, tech debt is a bit of both. You know, mm-hmm. you have tech debt across your entire code base, but you don't need to boil the ocean and fix the whole thing in one go, you need to identify the subset of stuff that's going to be in your way for the immediate business priorities and the rest of the stuff that doesn't cause that many issues, uh, you know, keep an eye on it, but you don't need to fix it now and then. Hence why we decided to be integrated in the uh, in the engineer's workflow and have this separate place, this web app, where they get um, or consume the information they've tracked and use it as sort of a staging ground for what goes into Jira once they've decided to deal with it. But that's just one of the lessons, you know, I mean, we um, think at at some point we were building a a sort of specialized search engine for software engineers under the the premise that, hey, you know, there's all this um, engineers spend a lot of time Googling stuff. And if we can make this process better, we'll have a a, a big, valuable business that, that helps them a lot. And then we realized that commercial engineers who work within companies don't necessarily find all the answers to their problems on the internet because the data that relates to their private company, their private company's code base isn't out there, it's inside. And so then we started um, looking into ways to leverage all this data that engineers create as a byproduct of the work they do. So you know, things like a Jira ticket that describes the intent behind the code, the commit messages and all the data that you have in Git about the history of the code base you're dealing with and much more to try to put together a product that we said it wasn't exactly that, but it kind of helped you automatically document your code. So for any snippet of code in your code base, you could find the data internal to your company relevant to it to understand what's up with it. And then, you know, the problem we were trying to solve with that product was um, we, we, we saw that engineers spend most of their time trying to understand code. Mm-hmm. And we figured, well, the problem, the reason it's so hard to do is because of a lack of documentation. So let's try to fix that. But actually what we realized is that the reason code is hard to understand is often because of technical debt. You know, imagine the perfect piece of code that's perfectly written. It should be fairly easy to understand, you know, and that piece of code matches your understanding of the problem that you're trying to solve. Everyone's on the same page. It's not exactly the same thing, but you almost read it like prose, right? Um, And that was not the case in the companies that we spoke to. And so we started looking at the problems with technical debt. Like, why is it that technical debt is so hard to deal with? And there was sort of a a fork in the road. You know, at first, we saw that um, people were having a hard time measuring tech debt. And we interpreted that as um, they didn't have metrics to identify where the tech debt in their code base was. So we built a prototype that was computing like metrics like um, 
the levels of ownership in the code, the um, pace at which a piece of code is changing, you know, the churn rate for a piece of code. We'd look at static analysis and, and classic code quality metrics um, to give a rating to the quality of your code. And we try to identify hotspots in your code base like that and tell you, hey, this piece of code over there is looking pretty bad. You should do right. something about it. But then when people looked at the data, they were like, oh, yeah, I know it looks bad, but I don't really know what to do about it. And most importantly, I don't really know how to convince the company that we should do something about it. And that's where we went for, you know, I mentioned the fork in the road. The, the other leg of that fork was, um, you can think of it as, as metrics versus people, quantitative data versus qualitative data. And that's where we started building the product that we have today. You know, it's less than a year old, I think, where it was built on the premise that if you speak to an engineer about their code base, or at least the parts that they know, they'll be able to tell you, this is what's messed up with it. You know, right. I know, I know that this thing is messed up. The yeah. thing that they have a hard time doing is explaining why the business should care about the fact that it's messed up, right? Right. Hence why we built the product that we have now. So I'm sorry, that was a super long explanation. I skipped some bits as well, but hopefully you see you see the the trail of thought here. Yeah, no, I think you did a great job taking it. So something that I think is different from what I saw from, with step size from other kind of like out of the box status, static code analysis tools like uh, mm. SonarCube comes to mind yeah. is you have the human interaction. You're not, it's not, you're not just relying on what your what the software can kind of glean from what exists, but you are really relying on humans to control, document, um, and participate in like really creating the, a real understanding of where the people see the problems. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you know, I tools like SonyCube or CodeScene or CodeClimate are invaluable. They're great at what they do, right? They're also very complementary to what we do. I mean, I can totally see ourselves building integrations with these tools later on so that we can say, hey, people have identified this issue with your code. And by the way, here's the code quality score from CodeClimate. Here's what CodeSeed says about how much activity this code is seeing in Git. Uh, here's what Sentry has to say about the errors that you have uh, that this code relating to this debt is throwing mm -hmm. is just uh, that there's a gap in the market or, or in tooling where you know the business context relating to the debt is just as important as the quality of the code for example right no, certainly we need to be honest with ourselves too as engineers like how mm -hmm. we want to spend our time and sometimes it's like something might feel bad but not might not actually be relevant in the moment maybe it will yep. be someday it's not that the ideas and thoughts are irrelevant so before like so alexander i'm really excited about some of the stuff we're going to talk about specifically around tech debt um, but really just for the sake of kind of completing our, our narrative with with step size as a product mm -hmm. you are talking it seems like you have an opinion on how to connect tech debt to business decisions how do you guys see that bridge happening like what do you, what are your ideas there yeah, that's a giant topic. I think we need to talk a bit about uh, what impact tech debt can have on a company if not dealt with properly, because that that will make it easy to to explain. Mm -hmm. You know, there there are sort of three main reasons to get a good handle on tech debt. Number one, to increase engineering productivity. Right, if the yes. code is well maintained, we'll ship faster. Well, well, the well, yes, yeah, ship faster. But there's a real dollar. Um, yeah. 
like value can just like, I don't, and I don't think we talk about it enough that we are paying people's salaries. Exactly. Right. That's exactly what I was yeah. getting to is like, you know, you want to increase productivity. Your engineers are probably the, you know, rightly so highest paid people at your company. It's the biggest right? expense of the, of, of, of any yeah. organization, right? So it's why the biggest would expense. you want to optimize that exactly. resource? Exactly. And, you know, like there are many, there have been many attempts at trying to measure engineering productivity. It is super duper hard. You know, I, I mentioned how you can use Git data to look at, to try to sort of find hotspots in your code that might have uh, or might cause bugs in the future. Uh, some products use this data to try to measure the productivity of an engineer. You know, this is how many commits they push. This is how quickly they merge their PRs, all that type of stuff. And it's interesting, but I find that it often creates the wrong incentives. You know, um, it's really hard to measure productivity for such a creative job. So anyway, that's a totally different topic. But, you know, reason number one, increased productivity. Engineers are highly skilled, highly paid people. Why would you not want to optimize that, right? But it's hard to draw a straight line again between these things. Number two, to improve product quality. You know, if you don't deal with tech debt, you'll have more bugs, you'll have more outages, you'll have more support requests, your customers will end up uh, leaving for competitors, or at least that the risk will be mm. increased. So again, there's a real money component here, right? If you manage to draw a straight line between a piece of debt and the product quality issues that it causes, and then estimate how much money it is costing the business, you're doing a good job at building the business case for this piece of debt. And, and then the... Yeah. To, to just jump in there, do you feel like you're helping engineers bridge that gap today? Yeah, that's it's not perfect, right? It's mm -hmm. not finished. We still have a lot of work to do, but that's that's our goal, right? Where I'm headed with this, um, you know, sort of telling you about the impact that debt has on the company is that when you want to convince the business that it should be investing engineering resources into maintenance work as opposed to investing these engineering resources into shipping features, you need to be able to make a compelling business case. And StepSize is here to help you with that. You know, the third aspect, the third reason why you might want to um, be careful in uh, how you manage technical debt is that it has a very big impact on engineering uh, team morale, right? People who um, engineers are here to ship and build cool stuff. They can't stand spending a month just, uh, you know, going through a ton of red tape and a ton of problems to deploy a tiny change on the footer of the massive company's website. If that's what their lives look like, they're not going to be particularly happy and they end up leaving the business. I mean, there are a few studies that um, have shown that it's one of the, the, the biggest reasons for employee churn. Well, so, why, why, why wouldn't we want to care about the general quality of life of what it means to build? Yeah. I think like building software is almost like the, a secret world where we <laughs> imagine, like we just see the outcomes, but we don't imagine what, it, what, what the people participating in actually creating these things are going through yeah. every day. Yeah. It's fascinating. You, um, when you start looking into the sort of hidden complexities of what we do, um, that's when it becomes fun, actually, is, is dealing with these complexities. But if you ignore them, uh, that's, that's when you end up with, uh, with tech debt. You know, I, I've heard tech debt described as the result of entropy in your code base. You know, so mm -hmm. it's totally inevitable. You know, you're going to have to deal with it. I mean, even if you just left your code alone for two years and came back to try to spin it up, every dependency <laughs> is going to be deprecated. You're going to have a hard time just, you know, just running it. 
So even if you don't touch it, you're going to accumulate tech debt. Now, imagine if you have dozens, hundreds, sometimes of engineers shipping code day in, day out on this code base. Now, you know, complexity levels go through the roof. Mm. So, you know, to go back to your original question and, and to summarize, I think the way you convince the company of dealing with a piece of debt is by taking the time to create a and build a real business case for why it should do so. Do you have an example use case, just like off the top of your head that you might kind of just throw out there for starters? An example use case, you're talking about a piece of debt or you're talking about- Yeah, use like case maybe for... just one story to kind of help give us like that first example yeah. that we could maybe take away to our own work to maybe get creative with on how we describe and get buy-in from a stakeholder. Yeah, that's an excellent question. I mean, I'll give you an example for step size actually, because we use step size on step size. You know, one of the big components of our product is the integrations that we've built with GitHub, Jira, the code editors, et cetera. And one of the sort of pieces of debt that we have in the code base has to do with which version of the GitHub API we were using to build our bot that allows you to report tech debt directly from your code review. And you know, we, we were using the old version, they moved on to the newer GraphQL version, if I'm not mistaken, which I didn't build myself, right? So I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep it fairly high level. And we had to decide whether we were just gonna you know, keep going with the old one or build with the new one. And when we and, looked at our roadmap- yeah. Sorry, I keep interrupting you, um, but when you're oh, saying this transition, you're not only going from, it sounds like you're going from REST to graph, traditional REST, yeah. JSON APIs to GraphQL. This is yeah. not a cheap transition. No, 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 no. Uh, you know, for us, it is cheap because we're small, hmm. but, you know, we have sort of four or five people shipping code and the code base is still relatively small. But imagine, you know, making the case, I mean, at Priceline at the company where you work, for example, this is Certainly. a massive endeavor, you know. And so we had to decide whether we wanted to keep going with REST or whether we wanted to wanted to move to GraphQL. And after looking at all of the modifications, the improvements, the features that we wanted to ship on our GitHub integration over the next month, you know, we didn't need to look far into the future to decide that, um, you know, A, there were some features that we would have a really hard time to build if we weren't with GraphQL. B, some features were just not possible with the old REST API, right? So some things we wouldn't have been able to ship. We had been tracking the amount of time that we were losing, we thought, because of the fact that we were using REST instead of the GraphQL API. It was you know, a handful of engineering hours, but for us, it adds up over the course of sprints. And we had a few bugs in the way the, um, the integration was working that we, think we thought we would eliminate quite easily if we dealt with the root cause and moved over to GraphQL. So we made the move. But you know, I'm talking about, this is a fairly simple example for a fairly small company. You know, some of our customers, oh, I won't quote any names, but have the same idea, right? Where you rely on third-party integrations to provide the service that you provide and you get much bigger. So you build integration on integration and then you realize that you need some abstraction layer to, to sort of handle these integrations and, and to be able to add some and modify them and, and do so properly across several engineering teams, not just one like ours, and not just uh, for a bunch of people that are sat together around the same table. And 
To do that, you need to go through a very serious process that you actually, you told me about, you guys have a very good version of it at Priceline. You told me about your um, technical steering committee hmm. where you take the time to create a proposal explaining, explaining the business case for doing this. You say, in the past, we have shipped these features that we estimated would take X amount of time. They took Y amount of time, which is 50% more than we expected. Hmm. Um, I staff engineer who knows the code base and has taken the time to look at it, think that if we built it with this abstraction layer, we would avoid wasting this amount of time. And looking at our roadmap, we're going to ship three new integrations this quarter. This is how much time we're going to save. This is how much money it adds up because we're talking about three teams of engineers. Let's do it now as opposed to let it bite us in the butt and have to come back to it later. When, by the way, the more time you wait, the bigger the problem will be. Yeah. You know? So you have to factor all of these things in to, to be able to convince the powers that be that you should invest resources into dealing with this stuff. How do you deal with uh, side effects of these big, let's say, technical depth or migrations, transformations? Let's say, let's just use the same example as from going from REST to GraphQL. There's yeah. obviously going to be some things that will come up technical debt related, like you, you'll have to upgrade some dependencies, you'll have to do some refactoring. So obviously that will come up, but it's unknown until you actually do it and you launch it or you beta launch yeah. it and then things will come up. How do you account for those side effects in advance or maybe you don't? Yeah, so I think that there are many, many strategies about how you would refactor, say a code base to move from a monolith to microservices or whatever it is you're trying to do. Or back um, again. Or back again, yeah. And there, there are people who are much more qualified than I to, to um, sort of, you know, get into the detail of that. But what I would say is I would compare the consequences of not doing it with the risk uh, that you incur doing this stuff. You know, let, let's pick the example of the monolith and um, microservices. No, actually, a general example. The way a lot of older companies deal with tech debt is they just do a massive rebuild every three mm -hmm. to five years. Yeah. You know? And that's what will happen. You will take six months to a year to much more to rebuild the whole thing. And I've spoken to companies who it's like, it's a bit, I, I laugh, but it's not funny. They, uh, they were building some of their stuff on maybe an older stack, you know, using some Oracle DB or whatever. And the poor CTO was telling me, you don't know the worst is I'm locked in to a contract to be using Oracle DB for the next like five years, you know? And then, you know, you stack dependency on dependency like this and I have another contract and it's staggered and another contract and it's staggered. So even if I wanted to, I can't get out of this stuff all in one go. So I need to somehow devise a strategy where I can you know, extract myself from all these commitments. And it's a lot harder than, I don't know, refactoring some modern JavaScript stack. So anyway, I'm just you know, doing a bit of fear mongering. You sort of compare the negative consequences and the risk of not doing it versus the risk you incur with doing it today. And most of the time, it's worth doing it incrementally you know, starting today rather than in one big go in yeah. five years. Yeah. yeah and so, then so. Uh, I think you gave me another thought, which I lost. And I'm going to give myself a second to see if it comes back. <laughs> Alex, All right. So, yeah, right I was going to say that uh, with these 
big projects and, and bigger technical debt projects uh, and uh, going back to steering, uh, technical steering committee, when you make a business case, when you have, let's say, a leg legitimate reason to address technical debt and have some investment, let's say, take three months to do it, encountering those side effects may make things worse because you're asking for three months, you're asking yeah. for like, it's going to take this much time. And instead, yeah. it can turn into a year project or it will yeah. uh, open up the kind of worms that nobody wants to see. Yeah, actually, you reminded me of what I was going to say. I think the way you deal with that risk is by applying the agile methodology the same way you would ship a product. You know, you, you don't go and ship V20 of the thing. You start with V0, you do the MVP, you do proof of concept, you put it in front of customers, you see what happens and so on. You iterate your way through it. So that's how I would approach any big technical debt project. I understand that it's not always as clear cut. For example, what we just spoke about, you know, the, the CTO is locked into 15 different vendors with staggered contracts, kind of has to do it in one go or not at all. That's complex. <laughs> I don't know how to, I don't have a silver bullet for this one. I mean, I don't know how, how you could, it's, um, you know, the decisions we make kind of, which actually this is kind of leads us into, um, so Alexandra, you wrote, um, a really great article on, uh, what is technical debt really? Mm -hmm. How long ago did you write that piece? That was one of the first pieces that I wrote to try to clarify my thoughts on the topic. And I think you'll see that what I'm going to tell you about now is slightly different. You, you'll oh, see the germs of the idea, but slightly different. Yeah. Okay. I can have empathy for where the, why this piece is so important because of uh, how your product is strategically positioned. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important. And when I was reading it, I felt like that you were trying to get a common ground to have a mm -hmm. conversation about technical debt. And so, and part of it was you took a crack at defining it. And yep. uh, Alex and I have a lot of respect for who you're inspired from. Uh, Uncle yeah. Bob, I think was in there, Ward Cunningham. Yeah, Martin well. Fowler as well is another big one. Martin for Fowler. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to just kind of, I took some notes and mm -hmm. I think for this, for the next little, little bit together, I'd like to ask you maybe some probing questions into mm -hmm. your thinking and maybe you've, your, your mind has changed a bit. Yeah. Um, so I'd like to actually start with how you've described technical debt. You describe it as code is written yesterday. That is a burden today. This is not the same as all code is a burden. Yeah. Describe the difference. Yeah, that's the bit where I, I changed my mind a little bit. So if I were to rewrite this article, here's the definition that I would give you. I would say the technical debt is code that you've decided is a liability. So mm -hmm. the definition you had in the, I mentioned in the article, I think was a more convoluted way of trying to say the same thing. So I'll explain what I mean by a code that you've decided is a liability. Technical debt is inevitable. As we said, it's the result of entropy in your code base. Martin Fowler talks about how it can take up to a year of working on a project for you to be able to identify the ideal design for what it is you were trying to build. And that's just due to the fact that, you know, when you build a thing, you do so based on your understanding of the problem at hand. And then you go off and you, you, know, you speak to customers, people use your product, things evolve, things change. And so the business context changes and boom, all of a sudden the code that you wrote is no longer appropriate, not because the code's changed, but because your understanding of the problem and the situation has changed, right? And so that's the moment at which you decide that this code is now a liability. 
it may be perfect, but you know what? We started this company assuming that all our customers would be in the UK. And now we're dealing with multinational companies who have to deal with 15 different currencies and our system is not built for that. You know, Well, the code a day ago was fine, but now you've decided it's not. So now it's tech debt. And I, I've really spent a lot of time to try to simplify it to this point because you know, I think there's a lot of noise in the conversations we have about technical debt. People love to talk about process debt, design debt, code debt, this debt, that debt. At the end of the day, yeah, document it. I don't think it matters. You know, if you've decided it's a liability, it is now tech debt and you should figure out what you want to do with it. You either leave it to monitor it or deal with it for good reasons that move the business forward. You know what I find something uh, actually just reemerged into my into my head. I wanted to, I didn't want to interrupt again, (laughs) but uh, some companies uh, there's, I think there's a, an, curious connection between companies that rewrite things every three to five years and mm-hmm. the average engineer's duration in a company. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for like, sure. Like we have to write things every three years because those engineers left and we need to rewrite the things that they wrote. Yeah. Wait, it's a funny wait, are, observation. Are you saying that engineers like new shiny things? <laughs> they, they just like to rewrite things? Just no, for the sake people of it? like new shiny things, Alex. Okay. Okay. I, I I agree. I agree. Yeah, but you know they want to build and ship stuff. So again, well, here's if you're here's, home... here's the connection here too. So Ward Cunningham actually I think was uh, Martin Fowler's inspiration. Probably. Um, yeah. And actually describes it the way that you did is um, tech debt is an alignment between how well the software or code reflects their current understanding of domain and features yeah. it represents, and that people should do their best to represent the features in code based on how they understand these things today in a way that would allow for it to be refactored later based on the learnings they may have had. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's such a good description. I mean, the, the analogy, you know, between technical debt and financial debt is one of the best ones I've ever seen about Mm -hmm. anything, because when you think about it, you can use technical debt as leverage, just like you would financial debt, right? It's like, we are going to make this, we're going to take this loan to, do this thing faster, better, whatever it is. And we know that over time, we're going to have to pay the principal back. There will be interest. You know, there are, there are consequences to this decision and you need to deal with it. And the same goes with software. So there's often a very clear distinction in the way companies that are pre-product market fit and post-product market fit deal with technical debt. When you're pre-product market fit, the whole thing's an experiment, right? You have some assumption and intuition and hypothesis about what it is you need to do for the customer. You find the minimal version of that, you ship it, you learn, you change, off you go. Oftentimes, because you don't have any real customers who are using your product all day, every day and paying for it, the way you deal with your debt is you just throw the code away and that's fine. You know, That's the mm-hmm. best way to deal with debt. Mm-hmm. But then you get to a stage where you have customers who rely on your software. You have a platform that you need to maintain. You can't afford to just switch it all off and bin it and start again. You have to work with what you've got. And that's when you start you know, having to pay back the debt in a slightly different way than just tossing the whole thing away, right? So yeah, I love the analogy. It works on so many levels. So, so we can't uh, declare bankruptcy every uh, two years. Exactly. Oh, exactly. I like that. Exactly. Yeah. 
So, like you, okay, okay, got chapter it. Chapter so 11, you can only do exactly. it so many times. So. <laughs> that's, that's what we like to do, right? Every couple sure. of years. Sure. So what is uh, what are good examples of technical debt, right? So it's all kind of vague at this point. Like it's it's the code that we write yesterday. Now it's technical debt yeah. today. What are the like specific examples of technical debt that we can we can name? Yeah, the way I like to think about it is in terms of what it impacts at the company, right? So like I said earlier, productivity, quality, or morale, right? Uh, you can feel utterly miserable working with this code because it has ossified and someone who wrote it did not document it. The quality of the code is terrible. The complexity levels are very high. Therefore, it's tech debt. Like, and you can imagine so many examples of, of this stuff. It's a fairly classic one. So, so um, the code that I don't understand as an engineer, uh, it's hard for me to read, to, to, uh, un to understand its technical debt. To yeah, me. but I, I would be careful with this one because often people have a hard time understanding code that someone else wrote. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that it's not appropriate. So I'd really focus on whether this, this code is following whatever standards we've agreed to follow at the company. Uh, if we've decided that we would um, add helpful comments, does it have helpful comments? If we decided we document it, is it documented? All this kind of stuff, right? Uh, that's one category in which you can imagine multiple examples of tech debt. And, you know, tools like your code quality tool is a great way to find code that is rated F because it's highly complex and it doesn't have comments and it's too, you know, fair enough. Then you've got types of technical debt that relate more to the way your system is designed and architectured. You know, we spoke earlier about the example of a company that has a lot of third-party integrations. It's kind of their business. It's part of their product. And, um, if they don't rejig the way they build these things, it's going to slow them down a lot. So it'll impact productivity, you know, or maybe it'll cause bugs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, earlier, John, you were saying that the definition of debt we're working with is not that all code is a burden, all code is debt, right? That is true because there's some nuance, but I think that all code has the potential of becoming debt. So, mm -hmm. You were asking for examples. I think the examples are very company specific because mm -hmm. what matters is whether they're in the way of your company objectives. Right? If you say we care about shipping fast, then the debt is what gets in the way of shipping fast. If you care, we, we need supreme reliability and something calls outages, that's the debt. I just want to take a moment to just put an exclamation point on something that I think is could lead to very powerful conversations within a mm. team is uh, making the argument of how do you put describe tech debt as something that is preventing you from doing things more frequently. Mm -hmm. Just kind of rest that in your mind as you're going into your code base tomorrow or next week and you're kind of uh, like arm wrestling with something that feels complicated to like, I think we would encourage you to, to have that conversation with your stakeholders and say, say it specifically, this is preventing me from getting something done yeah. and point at it and describe yeah. it like in the moment and just, and, and have that conversation more frequently. Because I think a lot of times as engineers, like we suffer in silence, something that my, uh, my yoga instructor would tell me to do yeah. <laughs> <laughs> suffer silently. And if we don't describe these things, or at least just like uh, present opportunities to our stakeholders, um, that I think is probably just 
if we're struggling with getting prioritization or describing the business ad value, mm. start there, I think is kind of just like a good spot. I totally agree. And, um, you know, I think that's where the problem is. It's in the way we talk about tech debt and the way we communicate tech debt. Because if you, as a technologist, go to a non-technical person and say, this is the very technical reason why I don't like this stuff. It's, they're never going to understand it. And fair enough. Yeah, who cares? Like, it, it doesn't matter. I don't care how you feel. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't matter. Also, it doesn't mean anything to me, right? Mm-hmm. And if, if you go and you say, look, there are technical reasons why I care about this stuff, but really it's getting in the way of this business goal that we've decided we, we were all here today to accomplish. Of course, everyone's going to rally around it because, you know, people want to do good work and, and they, they want to work together and they'll cooperate, right? Yeah. That's where communication breaks down. Typically, when I, you know, I spend a lot of time speaking to engineers, but also product people, and there's this sort of gap in between yeah. the two where they just don't get each other. And if they just manage to speak the same business lingo and go towards that same common denominator, which is what are we actually trying to do as a business, then you're good. You'll make the right moves. Okay. So we talked about the things that exist today. Like it's, it impacts productivity and morale. It's like, I don't Mm. understand the code. It makes me less productive. I cannot Mm. ship things as fast as I can. Mm. What about risks? Things that don't exist now, but there is a potential or high risk that we know that will happen eventually if we yeah. address. Yeah, that's an interesting one because it's kind of like doctors and lawyers, if they do their jobs properly, you never really know the value they've brought to the table, right? If I maintain my code base properly, things will not go south. So I was speaking to a guy yesterday who made a point every two weeks to put in a short deck in plain English the incidents that they thought they had avoided because of maintenance work they had done in the past. And he would share this with his boss, the engineering manager. And the way he did that was he's in in the data engineering team for a very, very big company. And they have very good tooling. I think they use Datadog as their APM and they they could tell all of the issues that they were piling up in the past. And then they fixed it and they said, this is what we avoided in the future. And over, I say this because with this habit, they've sort of developed an intuition for what the risk is for XYZ piece of debt not being dealt with. And they, they talk about it with their PO, the, the project owner and their product managers. They tell them, this is what I anticipate might happen if we don't deal with that. Um, we care about reliability. I think it's uh, putting us at risk of an outage for these reasons. Give me this amount of time and I'll, I'll try to fix this thing. But I'm glad you asked the question because effectively, the reason that we want people to measure the impact that a piece of debt has had on their work right now is not just so they can use these totals to make decisions, but um, so they can extrapolate into the future. Right. We keep using this easy example of we touched this code this many times with these features. This is how much bad stuff happened. In the future, we will touch this code this comparable amount of time. I predict this much extra bad stuff will happen. Mm. That you need both sides of that that story. So I'd like to get a little bit back to how we're describing tech debt as somewhat of an alignment between the domain it's working in and Mm -hmm. how it's represented by the people creating it. 
So going through my notes here. So whenever I see a new team form up around a system that was built by someone else, so a team comes in, they're taking over a piece of software. This change management happens frequently. One of the first things we usually hear is after these new, the new team gets a chance to look at the system is this makes no sense at all. We have to yeah. completely re- rebuild it. And it, and it very well could have already been operated and maintained by a team of five, six plus, plus other individuals. Would you say that the behavior might not be a true representation of the code, or re- but a reflection on how the people involved are expected to understand the domain and how they're working in it? and might have different ideas on how they would organize the code to meet the requirements of the domain is how they say. So, so yeah. like raised in another way, right? Like you have a whole new group of people being introduced to a problem domain, maybe for the first time coming into like taking over a piece of software that was defined by other folks that have already been immersed in this domain. And yeah. now maybe there's, you know, they they just have a different way of solving the same problems. Yeah, I really like what you described here because I think it illustrates the point we made earlier is that the code we write is based on our understanding of the problem at hand. And if someone else comes along with a different understanding of the problem, of course, it's going to seem inappropriate, right? And there's, a mi- there's a mismatch, right? Like, there's a mismatch, a yeah. Mismatch. Yeah, and then you take the time to get on the same page and you go, huh, okay, I, I get it. I see how it came to be. Might not be how I would have built it, but you know what? It works and my goal is now to add this extra thing. I understand what they were doing, so I know how to add my extra thing here, right? It makes right. sense. So yeah, I really like the way you described this. So when I study a piece of code, I try to read through how it is organized first to get a sense for how the originators thought about the domain and the problems they were um, looking to solve. Most of the time I find that at first I might cringe or I might disagree, but as I come to terms with how a program is laid out, I begin to understand the parts um, that can be extended. And I start to develop like an appreciation for the decision-making, maybe like there was a shortcut that they had to take yeah. or for instance, or maybe like at the time um, they didn't have access to certain types of resources that they do now. So it's easy to kind of judge those things based on hindsight, which sometimes yeah. isn't exactly fair. So is tech debt a people problem or a code problem? Yeah. Okay. I love this question. Before I answer that one, I'll comment on what you said before. One of the most popular features that we built at StepSize is that when you report a piece of debt from your editor, we add a little little icon saying, careful, someone reported some debt and you can mm-hmm. check it out. So then you understand the workaround that they might've been catering to and the reason why this thing might look weird and now you get it, right? Mm-hmm. So, and now I understand why this feature is so popular. So thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Can you repeat that question? So you were asking if tech debt is a people problem or? A code problem. A code problem. So because all of the definitions we go by is the code we create yesterday is debt today. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, but it's, we're really what we're depending on. If we're going by like a a human perspective on, you know, Mm -hmm. humans are, we're creating the code. And if it's our job to write code that represents the domain, if we all agree that that's, a good thing and that change management is hard and leads to building more software in different shapes mm-hmm. is technical debt. Like, is it the response? Is it, is code really where the issue is or is it mm. more of a people issue? Yeah, that's a great question. I, um, I think it's, it's a bit of both and I'll explain why. Martin Fowler has, I mean, one of my favorite pieces of his, I forget what it's called. It might be, I think it's called the technical debt quadrant. Mm -hmm. You should go check it out. Yeah. In the technical debt quadrant, he explains 
how a piece of debt can be reckless or prudent and how it can be taken on deliberately or inadvertently. And you know, I'll give you an example of why I said um, it can be about code. If you are reckless about the debt that you take on and you write poor quality code that isn't designed properly, like this is technical debt that's on the one hand all about your code because it's it's you know objectively bad, and on the other all about people because you're the one writing the code, <laughs> right? So we've got both here. And then you know, on the other, as for why it's all about people as well, we can use the example of what we said of, you know, you, you've got a piece of code and someone else shows up and sees the problem differently and therefore it, it's potentially tech debt to them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think we can distinguish either. What I would say though, is that there is a good kind of debt and a bad kind of debt, right? right. The former, which is reckless and inadvertent is bad. You know, no one should aspire to write code like this and you know we should avoid it uh, technical debt that is taken on prudently and deliberately is totally fine and in fact if we didn't use it for extra leverage we'd probably be too slow and we'd probably end up getting beaten I agree by with that yeah there are sometimes yeah. it's appropriate to take a shortcut cut a corner yeah. for the sake of meeting market demand exactly yeah yeah so so yeah I'd say both but you know, the reason there's a gap in the market and why step size is the only solution of its kind is I think because people tend to forget about the people angle. Yes. With I, was actually, I, was, I was actually just going to say that. And that was something that I admired about step sizes, how much of the people are involved in the process. It's not just delegated no. away to some appliance that will just kind of do it for you, stamp a mm. score like arbitrarily. I mean, the gamification feels good. We like to think we're leading to better code, but I don't see how those tools help us make the code fit the domain because those tools can never understand the domain. Yeah, they never will. It's again, they have their place, but I have, you know, stood in front of a report that we put together on some really top companies code base, looking at it with the chief architect. We had a great conversation about the metrics in there with the old product, right? And he just told me, um, okay, now what? Exactly. What do I do? I I don't know. Uh, I guess go speak to the teams who deal with this code that we've said is a hotspot. And Mm -hmm. and here we are. It's all about the people. (laughs) Yeah. So if we're depending on people to describe tech debt, how do we know it is the code that needs to change instead of the people working on it? Yeah. So going back to the previous point about reckless and inadvertent debt, I think you still need to have solid grounds in terms of the, you know, the engineering processes that you work with, the standards that you aspire to, the way you train your people, the way you review your code, the the levels of quality that you aspire to. This is just table stakes. Like everyone should do this stuff. Well, in the, in the world of agile though, it's a little tough because, you know, like a lot of teams and engineers, I know, and feel free to disagree with me here. We're not encouraged to look at the big picture. Yeah. We're encouraged to look at these like very tiny increments. And what I find sometimes in my practice and when Alex and I are working with folks is we're always encouraging people to talk about the why, but Mm. it seems like agile has been so kind of like process driven. It's become less like organic and more here's like a a means of control that is robbed and completely dehydrated that story. So yeah. it seems like our agile practice, and I would wager in most cases, robs engineers of being able to fully understand the domain in a way that re- can be accurately reflected in the code. And instead, 
we end up with like these kind of one-off patches, yeah. um, functions that kind of just don't really make sense, things that, you know, and and maybe like, maybe we're actually with our agile practice, we're robbing the opportunity of of, of even reducing the opportunity for tech debt. Yeah, I am. Um... I like that you brought this up. I think again, just yesterday, I had a lot of calls yesterday. I, I was talking to someone who, uh, who told me that, in their opinion, agile has been misinterpreted. Yeah, people think it's agreed. just about going fast. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it's not just it's kind about of an unfortunate going fast. Name, isn't it? Like it agile? is. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. It is. It really is. Like you know, people think that because it's called like that, it means that you can just you know make a one eighty move on a whim and things will be fine. Yeah. Or that, you know, everything that you're ever going to do is going to be quick and there'll always be some short solution. That's just not the case, especially with the kind of stuff that we build. Um, So, no, I'm I'm glad you brought this up. And um, I mean, I I suppose that's the challenge is to be able to keep the short term and the long term in your mind at the same time. You know, that's like the the, the contradiction that we deal with. And, um, you know, I often get reminded about how important it is to remind everyone who's doing anything at the company about why they're doing it. You know, like you're not just building this thing to fix this patch or this bug. You're building this thing because we care about retention and the customer uses the product in that way. And at the moment, they can't do it because of this. And, you know yeah. what, that's our quickest solution. But in the long term, this is what we want to do about it. It's just people are a lot more invested and motivated as well when you manage to to draw that line between what they're doing and what's actually happening for the company. So again, we're back back to this. I think it's just good management practice, isn't it? I mean, what could a manager do to help out? Like if you're no. a technical manager and you're leading a team and you know you're running, I prefer Scrum because Scrum I think is mm-hmm. uh, is more team oriented it removes like it's it says that we are practicing something together and we're trying to make a move and yeah. it's a rugby term right yeah in rugby the ball can move either way yeah the ball can move uh against you in some way yeah. and you got to think critically like okay what do we do now what's the next thing that we should do so lost my place here a little bit so, you, you were asking what a manager can do yeah and i know you. exactly what to tell you about that Oh, good. Because I want to. <laughs> That's the answer we want to hear. <laughs> so, um, some fairly simple things that I think will be really impactful. Number one, when you think about it, typically engineers get rewarded and see their careers progress if they ship features quickly and well. Yeah. You, at, on Fridays, you do the demos and everyone cheers because you ship this new thing and it's amazing. Do the same thing for the maintenance work. You know, like remember that this big refactoring job that saved a lot of people, a lot of anguish and the company, a lot of time or money or whatever it is, should be celebrated as well. So, you know, maybe at Friday demos, let people demo their big refactoring or this new abstraction layer on top of the integration system that you have and let them explain how much of a big deal it is for everyone and let their colleagues pat them on the back and tell them, I'm so happy you did that because I was not looking forward to working on this thing in the next quarter, you know, mm-hmm. and actually reward them in how you um, promote people, I suppose. The next thing is you really need to make room for conversations about technical debt and maintenance work in all of your usual scrum or sprint or agile ceremonies. Like when comes the time for planning, if you're the PM, you might not have the answer, but ask, hey, what technical debt would would put this feature at risk that we want to ship here? 
like, you know, go speak to the team leader who takes care of this stuff. You'll, you'll find out what will mm-hmm. put your staff at risk as well. Uh, you'll start having the right conversations. If they start geeking out on the technological aspect of this thing, ask them, like, hey, we have these OKRs for the quarter. Can you please help me understand how fixing this thing or changing this thing will help us move the needle on this stuff? You know, and like this, you'll build the right habits. You know, I know, John, that you told me about the ideal template for a JIRA issue that you would like people to fill out when they describe a piece of debt that they find in the code base. That's another thing that a manager can do, you know, like help help implement these these best practices. And I think it's part of how you you train your people. You know, they'll they'll pick up the right habits like that. And before you know it, your engineers at Sprint Planning will go, "Hey, this feature we you know scoped it out as a a seven or whatever, but here's the risk. They'll put this metric at risk, and we should do this about that. And I have an MVP in mind. And over time, maybe we we can iterate towards this 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 bigger version of the thing later. You get where I'm going with this, right? Yeah. I, lo- I think there's an opportunity for for technical leaders to help their teams along with building the narratives that will have the impact. A lot of times exactly. we get so used to just talking about the thing. Like, let's say it's a car. Like, hey, there's a car over there. This car, you can you can get in it. You can steer the wheel and and uh, you can push the gas pedal pedal and and motion will emerge will will happen. Every once in a while, you have to put fuel in it to keep moving. Instead, though, like the manager or the leader can say like, well, this is going to help you get from where you are right now to to the other side of the country if you really wanted to. This is like an opportunity you have if you actually have this. Yeah. Right. And and I think we can bring that language or help people around us in the data and the other way around, too. Right. Because if we're so used to talking about the engine, we're so used to talking about the parts of the engine, get a listen to the words that our stakeholders are using bring those into how we describe our work and that yeah. can help kind of loosen up the conversation a little bit. I totally agree. It's not an engine, it's not a car, it's freedom, you know. Oh. And that's a lot more compelling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. if, you, oh. if you we spoke about that problem um, of sort of speaking the same language between the the technology side of things and the business side of things, mm-hmm. the managers in the middle can help translate and sort of train Middle the management. to speak the same yeah, <laughs> to speak the same language. <laughs> yeah, I would also encourage uh, people to think about the opportunities uh, with the technical debt. Not only what can we should address and prioritize in the existing technical debt, but think ahead and, and think of a long-term impact. How can I refactor my code? How can I invest in technical debt right now and prioritize it in the way that I'm going to have electric car in, in the future? Yeah. And not think about the the engine as it is right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I um, <laughs> I always um, found it so cool how um, you know, Elon Musk made made sure that you could deploy updates to Tesla vehicles before there was any kind of self driving capability in the stuff. You know, it's this this kind of move. You know, know where you're headed, and it'll make a difference. Yeah, you're helping your product managers. You're helping your business stakeholders with the future innovation, with future business opportunities by addressing technical debt and prioritizing technical debt in the way that it's more flexible and gives them more leverage in the future. Yeah, that's exactly right. So a couple of other things I just, and I don't mean to to pivot too much with you guys, (laughs) but uh, so looking through kind of what was presented by Step Size, 
There's a quote on your website. So Stripe says engineers spend 33% mm. of their time dealing with technical debt. What does that say to you? Yeah. First time I saw this, I went, wow, this is a lot of time. That's like a third of anything they do. I don't know the methodology that they applied. I think they basically did a survey where they asked engineers, where do you spend your time? And they would say things like, this amount of time debugging, this amount of time refactoring, this amount of time on maintenance. And then they lumped it into this, this term that we use, technical debt, to describe all of this work. So, I mean, what it says to me is that it's really important yeah. to, to figure out how we're going to handle it. You know, And there's another quote that's not on our website, but I really like. Um, I'll tell you that story. During the pandemic, a lot of companies had all of their commercial activities completely frozen, right? And so the engineers had to figure out what they were going to do. And lo and behold, they started looking at how they were going to maintain their code base. And Gartner got a lot of requests from leadership at these companies who were asking for help. Like, how should we maintain our code base? How should we deal with technical debt? And they took the opportunity to do their own little study. And again, I don't know the methodology, but they concluded that the companies that they spoke to who had some strategy to deal with tech debt, not even a good one, just a strategy, ended up shipping 50% faster than the ones who didn't. And it sounds a bit nuts, but think about all the times that we scheduled a thing for a sprint and then it took a month. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And imagine this at the scale of a company. And imagine this on a global scale, because that's how far Stripe went with their research. I think they said, you know, the loss in engineering productivity is costing the world $85 billion a year or something like that. That's mad. I have, I got a man. So I appreciate the metric, yeah. but we have the luxury. We have a luxury to stand on the shoulders of giants. Oh, yeah. Right. We have technology. We have software costing us anything. I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't know if that's an actual. I have a hard time swallowing that as real debt or just being like, uh, you know, oh, geez, because I have software, I have these money problems. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's I like, uh, way... it's like the movie industry is talking about piracy. It's like you, you just like you pretend mm. that all these people would buy the movies instead of uh, downloading them. Off the yeah. I know it, what just, you mean. it would just never happen. I know what you mean. I think, I think I'm doing, doing them. Uh, I'm not doing them justice. The way they framed it was more of a, you know, this is the opportunity. Right. Certainly. This is what we stand to gain if we do better with these mm -hmm. things. Generally speaking, these large numbers, they just make me think, wow, this sounds like a big problem. I don't really mind if it's 80 billion or two or 500. It's just, it's a big problem. And I'll, I'll tell you what, the thing that speaks to me is not the fact that it's a big, big number, is that it makes people miserable. You know, engineers don't want to work on this stuff and it sucks. And you want to build, you know, you want to build your product. You want to well, ship that, your stuff and you is, can't do it. Is know? that true? Is that true though? I mean, okay. So here's, here's my take on that 33% is based on the definitions. We should be spending time reshaping the code to meet the, the new demand. Yeah. If we're not doing that, well, so what would you expect? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you in the sense that the goal we're striving towards is not zero technical debt. Right. This, this, this does not exist. Goal, right? Because yeah, it's, it's an impossible goal. You can't yeah. do it. What, what we're striving towards is, you know, 
a bit of structure in all the mayhem so that we're not so lost and overwhelmed all the time about it. You know, that's all you can ask for is just dealing with your tech debt as a fact of software development life. Well, and there's, there's also, I think we, and I'm going to, I would rope myself and my mm-hmm. mindset into this because I am also a contributor to this, to this, to the style of thinking from time to time is mm-hmm. the term weak signal detection. I cannot mm-hmm. immediately recognize what's in front of me. So I will immediately discard it and say it's mm-hmm. bad without yeah. actually digging into it and evaluating it based on its merits. For instance, I've worked on software. Um, I've worked with some folks. I helped them out with some old Angular JS applications. When I say mm-hmm. that to, to some folks, they cringe like, oh, geez, ew, Angular, <laughs> Angular JS, like, oh, wow, like, I don't want to have to do with that. But I'm looking at it as an opportunity. You know, I'm yep. looking at what's there. I'm trying to understand how it's described. And I'm working with the business to help them understand, like, where do you want to go with this? Here's what you stand to benefit if you get something, you know, if you yeah. modernize, you know, really there's, there's, in my opinion, there's no real excuse other than we just don't like it enough. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, what you said here is, um, I think, uh, related to what you were saying earlier about connecting it to the why, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not here to work on Angular. I'm here to help this business move forward. And I right. love the stuff they do. And, and, you know, it'll be a good thing for the world. And I can, I can empathize with what you're saying about Angular because tech debt is a bit of a dirty word to some people, mm-hmm. you know, they hear it. They're like, Oh, I don't want to deal with it. And what you're building a company to help people with tech debt. And I just tell them why oh, it's a dirty job. Someone's going to do it. But actually I don't think it's a dirty job. It's just part of building software. And it's so cool to go deep into that complexity and manage to simplify it into a few systems that you can use to make sense of all this mess. Absolutely. So the next thing that I think is really powerful and I want to make sure we 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 touch on is road mapping and planning. So mm. associating tech debt with your roadmap. On your website, you say that you can address tech debt blocking your roadmap. How do you see teams achieve that level of clarity using tools like StepSize? Yes. So what I would say is that sort of the general principle applies regardless of how you would build your roadmap. What you want to do is you want to clear important roadblocks before you send the whole team down the motorway at full speed. I'll just mm-hmm. run with this analogy. It's sort of, it's very simple, but often overlooked because of what we spoke about, about how tech debt is so overwhelming and we don't have a system to deal with it to make these decisions. So the question always becomes, do we clear the road or do we take a detour to avoid that obstacle that we just spotted? And the way you can think about it is if you plan on driving down that road often, or if you use it to transport some vital cargo, then by all means, clear it. But if you have enough fuel to take the detour a few times and the time you waste doing that doesn't compare to the magnitude of the job required to clear the road, then don't clear it. So effectively, what you want to do is you want to find the overlap between your roadmap, the code it's going to touch, and the tech debt that lives in that code, right? Mm-hmm. Let me, let me say this again, because I think I might have messed it up. There's this Venn diagram between, there's your whole code base, and there's a chunk of it that relates to your roadmap, the stuff that you're going to execute on for the next month. This is the stuff that you want to focus on. And within there, you want to find the things that cost the business the most or impact the uh, KPIs that really matter to you in the most negative way. And then you clear these roadblocks and uh, off I you see. go. Yeah. Right? So, That's a good way so- to think about it. 
Right. Okay. And where, where subsize kind of like helps with the roadmap planning and pull it all together. I think you helped connect it for me is because the team, if you're, if they're subscribed to step size and they're actively working on um, cataloging, inventorying things that they understand or as recognized as that over time, you can use that as inputs into your planning and your roadmap to say, Hey, look, I know in this quarter we plan on doing this. When I pull up this report, I can see that engineers are having a lot of problems in this area. I think we should set up some time in advance to clear the road to, to kind of steal yeah. your metaphor. Yeah, that's exactly right. I'll tell you exactly how it goes down. Um, we're planning. We say we have these features. Hey, Mr. Mrs. Engineer, which parts of the code base will it touch? The integration system and the data models. Cool. Open step size. Have a look. We organize the data based on the domains in your code base. So you can see integrations versus data models. Ooh, there's a lot more debt in integrations. Open it up. We care about the speed at which we'll ship this. Filter based on the tech debt that's caused us to waste the most time. Mm-hmm. Have a look at it. This is the top rank. This is what you know the person who documented this piece of debt has to say about it. Um, this is the business case for it. Cool, let's break it down into issues that we will deal with before we ship that feature. It's part of the sprint and off we go, right? That's how you make the decision. Awesome. And um, I'd like to just peek into measurement as we're getting kind of wrapping up here. Mm-hmm. So how do you, so working with teams, what are like the kind of the big levers or character, how, would, how do you help teams understand how to characterize their problems? Or do you provide a language for them to describe what they're seeing or what they're experiencing for the sake of, it sounds like for, if you're going to report on any of it, you have to at least have some kind of tagging mechanism or way to describe something commonly. So you don't have people just creating randomness all over the place. There there has to be some kind of structure. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really important. So one of the first things we do when we start working with a company is we help them organize the data hierarchy in their account. And it starts with the way in which you would split your code base. The, the domains in your code base. You know, for us, integrations, data models, front end, back end, or this feature, that feature. Some people have, you know, a feature for each domain in their code base. And that's that's the language they use to talk about they, their code. You know, they go, hey, the authentication code, the payments code. We set this up. This is really important because these are the buckets in which you put tag debt, right? So if you come across debt that relates to authentication, you put it in in, in that bucket. Now Another thing that we relay to them is people are really interested in hearing the process that we recommend they use to deal with tech debt. And maybe actually I'll I'll tell you about this one quickly. I've simplified it as well. Regardless of, it doesn't matter what type of tech debt you're dealing with. I think what matters is whether it's a small, medium, or large piece of debt. And I'll explain what they are. A small piece of debt is a thing that you can fix right then and there. To quote uh, Uncle Bob, uh, you apply the, the Boy Scout rule. You leave the camp better than you found it. And if you have the right engineering culture in place, engineers don't need anyone's approval to do that. They just see it, they refactor it, off they go. Great. Medium pieces of debt is, I'd say a piece of debt that takes about a sprint, like within, can be fixed within a sprint, essentially. And the way you deal with the, these is you have them go through your usual sprint, scrum, agile ceremonies. You, know, you treat it with the same sort of care that you would treat a feature feature work that you're going to do, right? You make the business case, you schedule it, off it goes. And then you've got the large pieces of debt, which I'd categorize as anything that takes more than a sprint, which typically gets bubbled up to a technical steering committee, you know, kind of 
like what you described, right? So sort of engineering and product leadership that gets together once a quarter, once a month, whatever it is, to decide whether these larger technical projects are worth doing. And again, they evaluate the business case for each, and then they schedule it onto the roadmap, right? Why was I explaining all this? We were talking about the data hierarchy. Right. You have your debt organized into the different domains in your code base. You then get to create what we call technical debt items that relate to these medium pieces of debt that you come across in the code base for which you make the business case. People, as in engineers, individual contributors who ship code, review code, et cetera, get to record all of the instances of these medium pieces of debt that come across the code base. Like, you know, ah, oh, here's us using the REST API when we should be using GraphQL. Log it into step size. You know, I traced a bug down to this part of the code and I spent three hours uh, trying to understand it. That's the impact that it's had on the company. Log it with it. And over time, what you're able to um, do if you track this data is to tell this is how much the, the debt in the code relating to the integrations code has cost us. And you get to bundle these medium pieces of debt into what we call proposals, the large pieces of debt that you would present at your technical steering committee. So you've sort of you know, bubbled up from the instances of debt, the small units of debt to these medium pieces of debt with a business case for it, the data to support it. Then you bundle them into a bigger project because that's often the case. You know, We need to build this abstraction layer for how we do integrations. And again, this data that you've tracked bubbles up and helps you make the, the business case. So that data hierarchy is really important to help people um, make sense of all the data that they're lobbing into the tool, you know, without it, it'd be really, it'd be a mess. Absolutely. Know? Like, yeah. yeah. And like, how do you organize it? Do you tag it with specific labels? So you can like organize it by epic or by project or by specific issue. So typically companies have a step size account where they have all of their debt for, for their code base. In there, there are tech debt groups, which represents the domains in your code base, so the buckets in which you will put your tech debt. And in these groups, there are items, and to these items are linked reports, which represent the instances of that debt. But really, a simple way to think about it is a tagging system. It's just a way to tag the data that you put in there. And you know some data points are linked to others, and they build into bigger ones. It's it, we're going to change the way it's designed, so the, the the terminology I'm using doesn't really matter. What matters is that you tag it with it's in this part of the code base. It relates to this piece of debt. It's caused this much problems to the business, and then you filter the data based on on these on these tags. So you end up with like authentication technical debt, uh, yeah. I don't know GraphQL technical debt, like these bigger buckets. Exactly. And then someone goes, we have to do this big technical initiative that involves this and that piece of debt in the integration system and the data models. And here's a proposal to go with it and bundled up. This is how much it costs the business and blah, blah, blah. You know, this is like, you know what I really love? It's not often that I hear of a workflow that gives, that encourages the bottom up influence that we so want most of the time. At least uh, yeah. um, Alex and I try to push for that frequently with the teams we work with. And this sound is like, I really appreciate because as a manager, you can't really get a holistic sense of, you don't really have a language to look at what's happening under the covers because you're yeah. always dealing with an abstraction. Um, but if you're able to see at a high level, how, you know, going a bit deeper than just hearing what people are saying yeah. and able to look at how they're reporting on what's happening in their world is kind of an interesting 
opportunity. Yeah, I think you need to be able to link these different layers of abstraction to be able yeah. to get an accurate picture at the top, if you will. And even because you constantly go from top to bottom, etc. And it's, it's kind of hard to explain. But when you're talking about a project at a very high level, at some point you go and you scope it down and you break it down into its smallest components. And you've gone from top to bottom. And the reverse happens again. If you want to use the right language to talk about technical debt, you find an instance of it. It's not about the code. It's about the domain and how that domain relates to the business. So right. you need to be able to go up and down all the time. Otherwise, you just can't talk about it properly. Alexander, fantastic. It's been so awesome having you on and thank you so much. As we're wrapping up here, maybe I'm curious, what's next for Step Size? And you know, how can people get in touch with you? And, and what reason should they contact you? Yeah. No, so thanks for having me on the episode. It was really nice chat. I really enjoyed it. They can find us on Twitter at StepSizeHQ. They can get in touch with me on Twitter again at Alex Omeyer. That's O-M-E-Y-E-R, if you're wondering. And really, if you want to have a chat about technical debt, drop me a line because I, like I said, I spend most of my time doing video calls these days with any engineer that will have me, any product person that will have me, anyone who's building software to hear about how they deal with tech debt, what's worked, what hasn't, because this is what allows me to write original content. It's what informs the way we pitch the product. It's what informs the way we build the product. So just drop us a line and check us out. And uh, you know, in terms of what's next for step size, we're going to keep building out the perfect product to help you deal with that tech debt. Um, the roadmap is long. <laughs> it will take a while, but come check it out. And uh, we offer free trials as well if you're interested in, in taking it for a spin. Alexander, awesome. thanks again so much for hanging out with us today. Alex, any closing thoughts? No, thank you. <laughs> thanks, guys. Awesome. Thanks for tuning in to the Pragmatic Lead Podcast. If you found this conversation interesting or helpful, we would appreciate your feedback. If you want even more content like what you just heard, check out pragmaticlead.com. If you have a story to tell, send an email to pragmaticlead at gmail.com and someone will be in touch. Thanks again.